From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening. Uh, welcome to the Sierra Lecture. Uh, I'm David Cousins, I'm President of the Society, and a very warm welcome here to the Royal Aeronautical Society and to Fort Hamilton Place. Um, quick safety announcement. If the fire alarm goes off, it's either a false alarm or for real, but please leave the building. Our assembly point is directly opposite the front doors across the road. You can get at either of these two doors. Just be careful of the ramp if you go up that one, or out the back door and make your way around, around the building. Um, mobile phones, um, off please, unless you really do want to phone a friend. Um, for those sitting down the back in the cheap seats, it's not a budget airline. Um, you don't have to pay for your drinks. As you'll see, they're very kindly sponsored by Sloan uh, for afterwards, and I do hope you'll stay and take part in the reception and the conversation that go with it. I will not introduce the speaker. That's David George's job. Um, David um, says that he has an interest in helicopters developed through his need to return home at weekends um, without going up and down the M1. Uh, he passed his uh, PPLH in 1968 and acquired a Bell 47 helicopter. Um, and his interest then began to grow. And so much his piloting skills to still be with us having started off in one of those aeroplanes. Um, he started operation with the Hillier and Bell 47s offering agricultural support services and ad hoc charter flights using Hughes 500s. The success of these operations resulted in additional aircraft being operated with aircraft sales becoming a core business activity. David's relationship with Frank started in the mid-70s when he learned that Frank was designing a piston-engine helicopter. In 1976, David became the UK dealer for, for Robinson Helicopters and has since that time sold over 600 and still counting? Still counting. Still counting Robinson Helicopters. The need for total support was recognised and in due course, David decided that all helicopter activities should be co-located in a new purpose-built facility. A new hangar an integral office complex was opened at Sywell, Northampton in 1989. And since that time, Sloan, under David's chairmanship, has expanded to include the Augusta dealership for the UK and Ireland. Flying school operations in England and Mallorca, as well as the establishment of a new maintenance facility in Ireland. David remains totally interested in helicopters and continues to pilot himself. It is silent here whether other people still fly with him. David, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's, I'm so pleased that uh, we've managed to get Frank to come over here and say a few words. It's a wonderful story. It has to be the success story of the helicopter world. I'm not sure the right number because you keep moving it, but it's probably over 9,000 you've now made. I would think so. And... It's an amazing story. I first met Frank, uh, actually it was sort of slightly sideways. I was in Kauai, which is the western island in Hawaii, and I met this fellow called Gus Lafiel. And Gus was Frank's uh, sort of partner. I'm not sure if he was a quasi-partner anyway. So while Frank was doing all of the uh, design and doing all of the drawings, then every week they'd uh, put these on an airplane and they would send them over to Kauai 
and Gus would make the dyes for the parts for we were all going to make the Robinson helicopter, and then they'd send them back. And it was a weekly transfer, wasn't it? Uh, uh, Monthly, was it? Yeah, it would be what... Because you're a pretty slow drawer, aren't you, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's uh, how I first met um, Frank. I would have actually probably met him as well because uh, we were the... uh, distributors for Hughes Helicopters, which now, of course, are called McDonnell Douglas or something. And at the same time, you were trying to make the tail rotor work for the Hughes, so we were all in the same sort of boat then. However, it's uh, uh, Frank's floor, and I'm sure he'll give us a very interesting talk. And um, we're very, very pleased to be sponsoring the evening and to invite you all for drinks and nibbles and all that sort of thing later. Frank, yours. Good evening. Glad to see a nice turnout like this. It's very good. And uh, I hope I won't disappoint you, but I don't really have all that much to say, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. The, uh, I have to kind of start with my own personal history for it to make any sense. And back when... I was born in 1930, about two weeks after the stock market crash of 29. So needless to say, I had to grow up as a kid during the worst of the Great Depression. And it was bad. And I look out over the audience and I really kind of doubt just how many people in this audience can remember the start of the Great Depression. I don't think very many. Most of you are too darn young. (laughs) Uh, But it was bad, and it was so bad that I don't think hardly any of you that didn't live through it can remember or know at all what it was really like. And uh, so I'll start a little bit with giving you my personal history. My family, of course, uh, I had two, bro- uh, two sisters and one brother. And my father was an unemployed coal miner in the state of Washington. You probably don't even know they had coal mines in the state of Washington. But they did. It was a very poor grade of coal. It was bituminous coal. We didn't have that nice, clean anthracite coal that they have in Pennsylvania and other places in the East. And so during that uh, Great Depression, my dad uh, made, uh, what, $40 a month on WPA, which was one of Roosevelt's uh, plans to help end the Great Depression. And which, of course, didn't work much better than any of the other plans that he had. But so be it. I grew up actually on an island in Puget Sound, Whidbey Island, if any of you know that area. And it's a, uh, quite a large island, as, as islands go. But it was... Uh, a very poor area. 
most all the people out there were very similar to ourselves. And the only way they could survive that Great Depression was to have, have a, a garden and have uh, do some hunting of deer, fishing of the salmon. My, fortunately, my dad was very good at both of those, so we, we actually ate quite well. We had lots of salmon, lots of venison, and lots of vegetables and fruit that we grew ourselves. We had a little five-acre parcel, and that's how we survived all those years in, in the Great, Great Depression. So that's the way that it was. The school that I went to was a grade school that was built there in Mutiny Bay. And it had uh, eight grades. It was a two-room schoolhouse. The first four grades were in one room, and the other upper four grades were in the other room. And that was it. And it did not have any electricity. It did not have any running water. And it had a lot of windows to get as much sunlight as possible so that the kids could read. And it did not have any indoor toilets. But it was OK, because the, uh, the men of the area would all get together once each year, and they would go out and they would dig a new hole for the boys and dig a new hole for the girls and they would move the outhouse, each outhouse over to the new, new locations. But that's the way it was and that's the way it was all through those early grades in school. I'm not trying to make an excuse for why I wasn't a much better student than I was but so be it. The, uh, <clears throat> when I was about nine or ten years old, I saw a picture in the Seattle newspaper of Igor Sikorsky hovering his VS-300 prototype. And it really converted me very totally, very quickly. See, I think I have that here. Yeah, there he is. And what really got me is that in the caption underneath the photograph, he described what he could do with that helicopter. He could go up or down. He could go f forward or backward. He could rotate it to any direction. And I was just so overwhelmed because I had no idea that anyone could build a heavier-than-air flying machine that could do, have all that freedom of flight. And it made me an absolute convert for life. So right then and there, I decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to get into that industry, and I'm going to have to make a contribution to it. And. So I got to school up to a point, but I, my family had absolutely no money whatsoever. So I, any schooling that I got, I had to, to pay for. And it was not easy. Now, the war hadn't started yet, so there wasn't any good 
defense jobs yet, as there was a little, just a little bit later, but uh, <clears throat> we survived. And I was quite good at finding ways to make money, even then. And <laughs> the, uh, well, I was going through school, through grade school and high school. I did a lot of different things. I, one of the most lucrative things that I did was trap mink, because I could get a really good price for the pelt, of a, pelt from a mink. And various other uh, jobs or sources of uh, income. And, but I had no illusions that I would ever be able to go to, the univer to a university and get an engineering degree. That was just too far out. And I, no one in my family had ever graduated from one of the universities or whatever. And uh, my mother had attended a school for a little while and, and became a school teacher in one of the small towns before she married my dad. But otherwise, my father had an eighth grade education. My brother had an eighth grade education. There was no educated person in my, my family to use as a, as a model. And uh, but I went ahead and took and earned the money that I could earn. And when the war came along, which wasn't very far away, it uh, did provide some employment. My brother got a job on the transports, military transports. I couldn't because I was still only 15 and had to wait until I was 16 before it was legal for me to work on the military transports because it was considered a hazardous occupation. But I tell you, the minute I got turned 16, I went down and signed up on one of the military transports. And from that time on, I got myself through school by working my summers and quite a bit, sometimes more than just my summers, working on the ships, mostly on the military transports, but I also worked on some commercial ships, American Mail Line, and Alaska Steamship Line, and just about anywhere that I could. And in the process, it was a, quite a good education because I got to travel all over the Pacific Ocean and Alaska and the Aleutian Islands and all of those places. And I'm, I'm glad it worked out that way. And it provided an income for me so that I could continue with my education. So when I graduated from high school, I was able to go directly to the University of Washington and major in mechanical engineering because I had a real strong interest and dedication to mechanical things. And I really wanted to make my 
life's work in that field. No one else in my family had ever done that or even thought about doing that. But I really liked mechanical things. I took apart every old clock that I could find or anything, or bicycles, whatever. I just loved mechanical things. So as time went on, and I was able to uh, continue with my education and, and uh, finally get my degree in 1957 from the University in Mechanical Engineering, I was really, really happy and uh, satisfied that I had been able to do that. The, I, as soon as I got that degree, I immediately sold some copies of uh, Jane's All the World's Aircraft to see what companies were manufacturing smaller helicopters. And I set up my application to most all of them that were making smaller helicopters. And one of them, uh, fortunately, was Cessna. And Charlie Siebel, who was the chief helicopter engineer for Cessna at that time, was impressed by my application and uh, offered me a, a job at Cessna to work on the Cessna helicopters, the CH-1. Some people call it the, the uh, uh, well, it doesn't matter. It was, uh, <laughs> this was the helicopter that I went to work on. And it was the helicopter, Cessna CH-1C helicopter. It was uh, quite an interesting one. So I learned a lot at Cessna because the very small engineering group, there's only about, I think at the most, seven or eight of us in that department. And we got a chance to do everything. And I immediately took the flight testing and did virtually all the flight testing on that helicopter. and. It uh, was a real good place to start out with, start out my career. And it was kind of unusual because I had always heard that if you don't, if you haven't started your life's work by the time you're 40 years old, it isn't going to happen. So forget it. Well, I was already 43 by the time I did that. And uh, already three years past due. But I did, I did it anyhow. And it, it, it all worked. Because I wanted at that time to do the very same thing that I eventually did do. I wanted to design a very simple, with the emphasis on simple, low cost helicopter that could be produced efficiently and could be sold to the public at a price that many people could afford. And so I decided to, uh, to follow that career. Well, when I went to work for Cessna, that was really good. And I spent three and a half years there learning everything I could. But they, uh, they were pretty cheap as far as their salaries went. But the, uh, 
they weren't doing all that great, so I could understand why. And I saw an ad in the Aviation Week magazine from a small company I'd never heard of before, Umba. You probably haven't either. And they were advertising for, a, they really needed a flight test engineer for the, for the certification of that gyroplane. It was not a true helicopter. It was a, actually, a, technically, what you call a gyroplane. Some people call them an autogyro, but that's a trade name, so that it isn't really legal to call them that. But, uh, and I went to work for Umba. And we got it FAA certificated and everything. But I didn't stay with them too long because the company, every week, we'd have to drive to a different state to find a different bank that would cash our checks. Because <laughs> Ray Umbaugh, he, he, he was a promoter, but that's all he was. He was not an engineer. He was not a financier. He just promoted it. But I learned a lot, because I, and I also learned what some of the things not to do. And <clears throat> so I decided to, to look around and, and, and go someplace else. So I went to work for McCullough, the chainsaw manufacturer in Los Angeles, who had uh, built a, uh, designed and built a, an autogyro and was convinced that that should be the way to go. Well, I went to work on it and uh, did a lot of development work on that gyroplane. But very quickly, I realized that, hey, this, is, this isn't going to work. This, inherently, this design or this type of aircraft is not going to succeed because it's terribly inefficient at low speed. The gyroplane flew quite well and uh, had quite good performance at the high air speeds, but once you slowed it down and tried to get a decent rate of climb out of it, it wasn't there. So I studied that real thoroughly to see what was wrong. And what it boiled down to is that the power that goes into that main rotor that handled all of the profile power and induced power that that main rotor needs had to go through a propeller. So the aircraft had a propeller on the, in that case it was on the, the rear of it, but some of them were built with, on the nose of them. And they are taking that energy that's going to have to end up powering that main rotor, and you, they've got to end up putting that energy into the airstream. And they then take that energy back out again as a drag on the main rotor. And the thing that's wrong with that is that the, the uh, propeller efficiency at high speed was quite good. You can get efficiencies of 70 or 80% quite easily. The efficiency of that propeller when you're down at the low speeds, that around 30 miles per hour, down in that area, it was terrible. The propeller was a really inefficient 
source of uh, thrust or propulsion. And uh, so I advised everyone that I knew there, and including Ray Umbaugh, that not the way to go. But they were not convinced because they had already gone down that road too far. And uh, so I looked around for someplace else that might have a better shot at it. And uh, trying to remember. Oh, command. Command helicopters was the one that actually contacted me because he, they heard that I had a lot of experience with these gyroplanes and they were in the process of developing a gyroplane. Charlie Command had become a convert to, the, <clears throat> to that form of uh, rotorcraft and so they made me a, a good offer, and I went to work for command up in Connecticut. But they were still stuck on that same concept, and, and uh, I, I think, well, I halfway convinced Charlie Command that it was the wrong way to go, that he should abandon that, and he should go with a gyrotine instead. So. I, worked for quite some time on a gyrodyne design, but that company was not doing well at the time. and uh, So I w looked around for some other place that I could light at. And uh, let's see, I left uh, command and went to uh, Bell Helicopter. And uh, a very legitimate company. And I learned a lot at Bell in, in helicopter design. And that went on for a while until I got kind of fed up with that. And all told, I actually worked for six different helicopter manufacturers to try to get all of the different experience that I felt I needed to, I really, in the back of my mind, really wanted to do what I eventually did, which was to start my own company and design my own helicopter. And uh, the <coughs> so after I was at Bell for a couple of years, I then was contacted by Hughes because they were having problems with with their. Uh, tail rotor at that time. Some of you might remember that. They had the so-called Hughes tail spin. Once it got up fairly high where the air was not as dense, the tail rotor was not very efficient and the pilot would lose it and they had and crash. And so I went to Hughes to design a new tail rotor for Hughes and, uh, and did. Try to remember where I went from there. Anyhow, the total of six different helicopter manufacturers over a period of 16 years to get the experience that I felt I needed 
And in each case, I would work at the company. And if they tried to specialize me in one area, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't buy it. I wanted to work in all the different areas, learn as much as I could. And I was able to do that. Finally, from uh, Hughes, I went to, uh, I have to stop and think a minute now, which, which, where did I go from Hughes? Yeah, well, I went, I, I went to, uh, where, Terry? That was the last one. Well, I finally resigned from Hughes. Yeah, I went to, uh, I started my own company. Yeah. I think I missed one or two others along the way, but that, that was the way it was. And so I start, was able to start my own company. I didn't have any money, no money at all. And I was not too uh, long divorced. And I had three kids to sport. And the youngest, which was the young lady here, Terry, who was only five years old. And uh, so it was quite a challenge to take on starting a, a company on your own and uh, with no other source of income. This was the house that we lived in at that time. It was located in Palos Verdes there in the south part of uh, Los Angeles. Just a small tract house. And we had to clear out all the furniture out of the living room and the family room and put, up, put in some drafting tables and other things that we needed to continue with that project. And in the meantime, I had gotten to know a fellow named C.K. LaFell. Somebody mentioned him earlier, and he was an amazing old fella. He had started his own company here in Los Angeles that made tubular products for Boeing and others. And he was an expert machinist, and he didn't have any, hardly any formal education. I don't think he went, I'm not sure he even finished the eighth grade, but he was, had good judgment, was smart, and could make almost any part of any drawing that I could draw for him. And so we, be, and he had money, because he had retired from uh, his company, LaFell Manufacturing, and uh, and was really intrigued with the idea of helicopters and became completely sold on the design that I had. And he did, as I think uh, David alluded to earlier, the way we did it, we designed the parts for the R-22 and I would buy the material so I could get good certified material. And we had good engineering drawings of it. 
didn't really have hardly any engineers, but a couple of us could. And every time they had a board meeting, Gustafell would come over to attend the board meeting. I would give him the drawings and give him the good certified material to make the part out of. And he'd take it back with him to Hawaii where he was retired and had his own little machine shop and make the parts. Next time he'd bring the new parts he had made back and pick up another set of drawings and more material. And that's how we made most of the machine parts. That's how they were made for the R22. The sheet metal parts were mostly made in my garage, which you see right there. It was not very big. But we had, uh, we had some tools that I, I had already bought over the years for my own little shop. I had an engine lathe and shear and riveting equipment and all of that sort of thing. And we were able to make the rest of the parts pretty much right there in that garage. We knew it was going to take a bigger building than that to put together a full-size helicopter. So I looked around and I knew the fellow that owned this building and talked him into leasing it to me. And it was, I think, 3,600 square feet or something like that. And we, it wasn't suitable to do any design work in, but we built a uh, plywood and plasterboard office inside of it, big enough for several of us to make drawings and work in. And I, I think it was there that uh, David George called on me and got quite interested in this little helicopter that I was working on. We didn't, again, we didn't have any plumbing in it either, but we had a, a typical uh, construction type outhouse. A little later, we, we knew that wasn't going to be big enough to do very much with, so I found this additional building that was about 4,500 square feet on Crenshaw Boulevard and we negotiated a, a lease on it. And it, it was big enough to, to actually start producing our helicopters in. And the first R-22s were actually built, made in that, in that building right there, assembled. And by the way, the happiest time of my whole life and whole career was the year that I spent nearly a year assembling the first R-22 helicopter. I didn't have any A&P mechanics or anything to do it for me, but I just loved to work with my hands and I knew it so well that I could do that quite efficiently. And that's how the first prototype was, was actually assembled. And this is the first prototype before it had flown. And 
I had been preaching some design philosophy to the other people in the company, one of which was to make your body shell, what you need to do is use flat wrap aluminum wherever you can because it's stronger, and where you can't use it because you have compound curvatures, then we'll use fiberglass. And you can probably see uh, that meant that this whole tail cone had to be made from flat wrap aluminum. And the, this area right here was also flat wrap aluminum. But up in here, where you start to have the compound curvatures, and out over the uh, windshield and the chin section, all of those had to be molded from fiberglass because you could do the compound curvatures quite well in the, in the fiberglass. Oh, the tail surfaces were also uh, flat wrap aluminum. So that was the prototype and that was the, the prototypes that finally in 19, uh, the summer of 1970, is that right? Yeah, 75. We took the uh, prototype, towed it on that little trailer that it's sitting on right there down to the west end of the field. And I started to run it up, check out the clutch engagement, check out the, all the different systems. Now at the bigger, larger companies, we, we, would, hey, take, we would spend at least two or three weeks or a month or more checking something like that out before we ever tried to fly it. But we didn't have that kind of time to waste. And so uh, the first day that I had it down there at the West End, we started going through all the different systems on it. And they all seemed to work ju just like they were supposed to. We had, of course, we didn't have any Chadwick, so we had to uh, flag track the main rotor blades. I don't know if very many of you even know how, how that's done now, because nobody does it that way anymore. But you're holding up a, a flag. Okay, you have, all right. You, you hold up kind of a, a flag device that you move in to where the main rotor is rotating and let each of the two main rotor blades contact that piece of cloth and it'll leave a, a mark on it because you put some some marking compound on the on the uh, tips of the blades and then you shut it down and you check that and you can tell which blade is flying high and which one is flying low and you start making your adjustments and that's how you get the get it flag tracked which worked okay and then we had all the other systems tail rotor, drive system, everything. And that was amazing how they all worked. And they were all doing just what I had calculated that they could do and should do and, and did do. And uh, so by, it was just right around noon or a little after that, frankly, I had run out of things to check. <laughs> and, so I told the, told the guys to take the blocks out 
of the controls. We had control locks that held those controls from being able to move anywhere on their own. And uh, to get back, and so they did, they pulled the blocks out, and I waved them all to get a good distance away from the helicopter. Because I wouldn't do the, the tethered test like it was so normally done in the other companies, where they would actually have a, the machine tethered down so it couldn't go anywhere, except where the tethers allowed it to go. And I went ahead and started to pull in the, ran up the RPM, started to pull in the collective, and it felt just fine. I went ahead and just lifted it off. And it was started to hover it, and hovering it around the area for a, a bit, and did some hover ta air taxiing with it, and it worked. It worked fine. And that's uh, that was the first flight. That was in August of 1975. And uh, the design was a two-bladed main rotor. And right here is a two-bladed rotor hub. Now, nobody had ever built one with this type of a rotor hub before. It has a th three hinges on the that hold the main rotor blades to the to the hub. You can you can see. Oops, that's the wrong way to go. Um, here's one of the coning hinges. And here's the other coning hinge. And then right up here, above the two coning hinges, is the teetering hinge. And it's that teetering hinge that allows the rotor to seesaw or teeter when you're moving your cyclic control. And in each case, I, had, I wanted to design that helicopter so it would not require any maintenance. I wanted it to go as, all the way up to maybe approaching even 2,000 hours without, before it had to have any maintenance. So part of that was to use the Teflon bearings everywhere that I could, because I'd done enough testing on, tef on the Teflon bearings that they would last for a long time if they were used in the right application and had the right <coughs> journal that they were operating on. So this had the Teflon bearings for the teetering hinge, and each of these had the Teflon bearings for the coning hinges. Then to, uh, I didn't want to have maintenance on the, the uh, pitch change bearings in the, in the blades. This is a housing right here, and inside of that housing is a stack of angular contact ball bearings because they have to carry a very high centrifugal load of those blades when they're rotating. And they are very subject, in that application, they would be very subject to uh, fretting, corrosion, and false brunelling, and so on. So I figured out that, well, 
they're only going to have that if, they, if there's oxidation that occurs where the balls are ro rolling back and forth as the pitch change occurs. And uh, I had run a lot of tests on needle bearings and other types of bearings to, and saw that occur. So I knew that that's what would happen. So what I just decided is that well, what I'll do is I'll put this stack of bearings on a spindle inside this housing and seal that whole thing up with a rubber flexing rubber boot. And so we got some neoprene molded boots that would fit and be clamped on as right here where you can see, and the same thing over here on this one. And all of the pitch change that would occur, the angular travel that had to occur, could occur in pure shear elastic deformation of that rubber boot. And uh, it worked. We had to go through some other deals where we had to bleed and drain the housing is when we filled it. We filled the entire housing up in each case with automatic transmission fluid. And so the, the bearings never had to see any ox oxygen that could cause the uh, fretting corrosion. And it worked, worked fine. So that was the system that we had, and I applied for and received a, a patent for that, and, and also for the uh, tri-hinge rotor hub. Now, the tail rotor also was a two-bladed rotor, but, and it was a simple teetering rotor. And it was made... Well, you can see here, it was made with a, 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 an aluminum forging for the root fitting, which was then connected or bonded to a honeycomb spar that ran out to here, and then it had a machined aluminum tip cap. And it had a wraparound aluminum skin, and the whole thing was bonded with the high strength structural adhesive that we use on the main rotor blades. But it had to be cured at about 260 degrees Fahrenheit for a, at least an hour. And that temperature had to be very accurately controlled because you had to heat it up at the right rate, cool it down at the right rate, and so on. So I designed a jig to to lay those parts up in and that would uh, fit, <coughs> actually would fit inside the oven in my kitchen stove. <laughs> and it worked out pretty good. Because what I would do each night, I would lay up one of the tail rotor blades, all those individual parts put in it with their ad adhesive on them, take them, take it home with me that night put it in the kitchen stove and turn on the oven. And while I was eating dinner, 
have it cured. And I was sitting right there so I could monitor the temperature. I had a real good and reliable pyrometer so I knew, could monitor the temperatures very accurately. And that's how on the early R22s, I don't know if any of you guys ever flew one of those, but that, <laughs> that's how the, the tail rotor blades were put together on it. And we never had a single problem with any of them. They worked just fine. And uh, oh, and another even far more important adv advance that we made, again, keeping things as simple as possible, was on the flexible coupling. And at that time, the other helicopters, they all had drive shafts. All the drive shafts had to have flexible couplings at several different points. And they used everything from uh, universal joints, like you'd see on a car, to gear couplings, to various types of uh, flexible couplings. And they all had a, a whole host of problems with them. And that's what finally almost killed the, the uh, Hiller helicopter because they just never solved that problem with their uh, flexible couplings. So while I was still up in that house, up in Paulus Verdes, I decided to go ahead and I made up a test machine that I could put one of these flexible couplings into, set it at the highest uh, misalignment angle that it was designed for, and we'd just run it for thousands and thousands, actually millions of, of uh, cycles to check its fatigue strength. Because what happens with this design, you've got these two arms, and then 90 degrees from there, you have another two arms. And they operate, I don't want to get technical here, but they operate on the principle of a hook's joint. And the hook's joint, which is what the typical old-fashioned universal joints that you've probably seen on cars and other machinery operate on, and it works, but it has one disadvantage that most people don't like. It has a... a changing angular velocity because that's just part of the hook's joint effect. Well, I didn't care about that because we had a very soft torsional drive system and I knew that that drive system could take elastically a significant amount of torsional mis angular mis uh, misalignment. And so it ran just fine and I had this one, which was the main one at the main gearbox, at the main drive, and it, of course, was considerably heavier. Each of these flexures are made out of uh, very high-strength, heat-treated stainless steel. This was the uh, more thinner material and a more flexible material used in the intermediate joint, and this little one here was used in the, uh, back at the end of the tailwater drive where it mounts to the uh, tailwater gearbox.
and they worked just fine and uh, were meeting their uh, fatigue lives just like they should, the whole thing. Well, I was so happy with the way that worked because they had no maintenance, no grease fittings, nothing. It was a completely unlimited life, uh, flexible coupling that <clears throat> would just run almost indefinitely. But I wanted to try one more thing. I wanted to see if I could operate that long tailwater drive supercritical. Now, you probably don't know what that is. But when you have a rotating shaft, depending on the distance between these supports of that shaft, it has a natural bending frequency. And if you operate that shaft at that bending frequency, the, the shaft will become unstable. And it will go into a, what we call a whirl mode and vibrate terribly and destroy itself. So on the Cessna helicopter, and then later on the Hughes helicopter, we had been able to successfully use a tail rotor drive shaft that operated between the first and second whirl modes by putting a, a bumper or a damper in, in between the uh, joints. And it, it worked, or it worked. I never liked it that much because it had to go in and bang against that bumper every time you started it up and shut it down. But it did work. And uh, so I came up with an idea that I could tune this whole thing to completely different frequencies and eliminate that need for that uh, intermediate bearing. So the, at a point here, it's a long shaft, out here, there is a, a small, lightly loaded ball bearing. It's a sealed ball bearing that operates on that tailwater drive shaft, rotates with it, and that changes its vibration characteristics just right so that when you hit that first whirl mode, it'll prevent it from going off uh, unstable. And as you go on up higher in RPM and you finally reach the second world mode, it changes the whole mode shape of that vibration and you, you can go through it as well. The only thing you can't do is you can't go all the way up to a real high RPM where you're going up to the third world mode. There it will become unstable. We have had uh, a few cases where the tailwater drive shaft in the R22 did go into the world mode at, at that third world mode and destroy itself. But uh, that's all they do. They, just, they would destroy the shaft and they would destroy the, uh, some of the uh, guards, you might call them, that, that were around it. 
But once we got the, got the uh, right damping for it and built these test rigs here so we could really run a lot of tests on them, we come up with a combination that would take that supercritical tail rotor drive shaft right on up through those first and second world modes. And as long as we didn't go above that, which was a very high RPM, uh, it would work just fine. And by being able to operate that shaft at that very high RPM, you can transmit a lot of torque at that high RPM, which means you're transmitting a lot of power with very low stresses in the, in the shaft, in torsion. So it turned out to be a very efficient way to transmit that power back to the, to the tail rotor. And that's the way, what we have used on the R22 all these years, and we have also used it on the R44, and we have also used it on the R66. They all have that same type of design, which has worked very successfully. There's other things that we have used along the way. This is the T-bar cyclic, which is both loved and hated by some of the pilots out there. Although I don't think there's any of them that hate it anymore. They've gotten used to it, and, they're, and they actually like it when they get used to it, because it, it has some real advantages for the pilot. The reason for it was to desensitize the lateral control of the helicopter. When you put in these cyclic motion laterally, this way or this way, it uh, de completely desensitizes the vibrations that are occurring in that control. And it also has the advantage that the pilot can adjust his grip on that cyclic wherever he wants to put it in the vertical direction. Because that is a completely free hinge here that allows each of those arms to go up or down. And that has a, a big advantage. The um, And again, we just really haven't ever had any problems with that T-bar cyclic. It also has some other advantages. For instance, getting in and out of the helicopter, you don't have to climb over a cyclic stick like you do on other helicopters. You have, uh, you just climb in and put your feet on the pedals and you're there. The others all have a, control that comes up right from the floor all the way up to here and so on. And the same on this side. So it, it greatly simplified the, uh, the design of the cyclic stick, reducing its weight and giving it the other advantages. And it desensitizes that lateral control. Because what happens, the lateral control or the sensitivity of the lateral control is purely a function of 
when the pilot moves his stick in this direction or this direction, he's has a leverage based on the on other helicopters with floor-mounted cyclics. It's a, a leverage based on that floor-mounting of the cyclic. Now, in, in this case, we don't have any any leverage because it's completely free. And as the pilot moves his lateral his cyclic stick left or right, he can glide over the top of the pilot's knees to get the additional control travel. And that works out real well because that additional travel, of course, really is what desensitizes that lateral control. Now, I'm sure that some of you don't really understand what I'm talking about, but it's an important part of the, of the handling characteristics of a, of a helicopter. So it's worked very well, and it hasn't changed. Well, you can see there, it, that's what it looked like on the R-22 that I flew back in 1973, or 75, rather. And uh, works the same way there. And now here in the R-66s that we are flying today, here's that same control. Works just fine. And here, of course, is a, a picture of the R-66, which is our latest and greatest uh, model. It's, um, now, the reason why we had to go to, the, to this model was because the oil companies stopped or made it uh, known publicly that they were not going to continue to produce avi aviation gasoline for helicopters. So we knew that it was just a matter of time until they were going to ground us all because and they weren't going to provide any of the uh, uh, fuel that we that is required. And the only fuel available out in many parts of the world is is the uh, Jet A which isn't really gasoline at all. It's, uh, uh, it's just plain kerosene is what it is that the jets all use. And uh, so we had to switch over to that fuel or else we were going to be grounded. Well, as it turns out, it was okay because the engine that, after beating on the people at Rolls-Royce for a number of years and to get the right price and to get the right characteristics and all that, uh, they came up with a, a very, very good turbine engine, the RR300 turbine. It's a 300 horsepower turbine engine that was designed for our, frankly, it was designed for our helicopter and now is already finding potential markets in other aircraft too, but it uh, is a good engine. And we have been flying uh, that 
engine in, the, in our helicopter now for a number of years, and it has been an excellent power plant. It has only one drawback, and I can't do much about that. It, it does burn a lot more fuel. But if you're willing to accept the cost of that additional fuel, it sure is a nice engine. It's smooth, has almost unlimited power, torque. It, uh, so we're real happy with it. And it has been a very trouble-free engine right from the beginning. And uh, just haven't had any real problems with it. And it, it, I'm sure it'll be a considerably more reliable than the older 250 Allisons that most of the other helicopters used because it eliminated that long axial compressor on the nose of the engine that did cause a lot of problems with a sensitive part of the, of the engine. And I think, uh, I don't think we're going to see it, if any, failures of that RR300 engine, because it does not have that long axial uh, compressor. Instead, it has a single stage centrifugal compressor that's just an all one piece casting and has looked real good so far. But it has the same fuel consumption that that Allison 3, 250 had. And I tried real hard to think of some way that we could come up with a, a diesel, high-speed diesel equivalent of it. But you just couldn't get there. The diesels are just inherently a lot heavier. So we're, we're happy to have this solution because it does have the other advantages of smoothness, quietness. It's just a very good, a very good engine in all other respects. So we'll just pay, buy more fuel for it. Let it burn it. So I think I'm about ready to go to the question and answer part of this. Frank, thank you very much. Inspirational. I'm sure everybody would agree. It makes me realize how much I take for granted. Somebody else? Thank you. Uh, while that's, just before people do ask questions, while the microphones are getting there, I just wanted to say that in 1975, as an apprentice, my crew chief gave me a pole with a flag on it and said, go wipe this on the rotor. I didn't believe him at the time. I thought he was joking. <laughs> but that's what I was doing in the same year, a little bit later than you. Yeah. Okay, can I take the first question then, please? Lovely to see you. Peter Gray, Flight International Helicopter and Tilt Rotor Test Pilot. We met some years ago when I came to visit your facility to fly the two, the two aircraft. Thank you for a wonderful lecture, 
very entertaining, very knowledgeable. I remember a couple of things my visit. Um, when I was doing the uh, turnaround of the helicopter with your son, you had just landed and the helicopter was being pushed into the hangar. He said, oh, Dad's found a snag with this helicopter. <laughs> so you were still actively test-flying in those days. I've been very privileged, actually, over the years to meet entrepreneurs such as yourself, Charles Kaman, I know quite well, and all the Schweitzer people. And these guys have the same direction, exactly the same. Learned all of that, learned all the lessons, the good ones and the bad ones, and they look way ahead. What are you going to do in your old age, Frank? <laughs> I did it. I retired. <laughs> Another question? Yes. <coughs> Phil? I'm sure we all admire you. Right, thank you. We all admire you for your uh, achievements, but as an aeronautical engineer, uh, by the way, I've been in helicopters now for about 63 years, um, <coughs> and I do remember flag tracking, of course. Um, what I admire, personally admire you for is not the design of the, and build of the helicopter, that's simple stuff, compared with your persistence against all the odds to get this thing moving. That was the thing. Now, you may or may not know that a few years before your graduation, in this country was being developed a helicopter which looked remarkably like the R-22 with a high rotor mass teetering rotor, uh, and it was called the Sky Rover. And it was a collaborative venture between the Auster Aircraft Company and the Rover Company, who, Rover Car Company, who had this wonderful little engine called the Aurora. And this is why I'm raising it. This Aurora was a very neat, rugged little centrifugal compressor engine of 180 horsepower. And that was the real thing behind the Sky Rover that made it, in my view, a bit superior to the R-22. Sadly, sadly, political pressure stopped the company developing it. Uh, typical f uh, in this country, you see. Now, what I'm suggesting is, would you not like an Aurora engine in the R-22 to call it the R-33, perhaps? Uh, now, the IPR of that engine is held by Lucas Company. Have you thought at all about looking for a small engine, turbine engine, to go in the R-22? I'm always looking for new engines. I prefer those that uh, operate on the diesel cycle because they're inherently much more efficient. But I would be interested in almost any engine if it can meet the... the weight requirements and performance requirements, including fuel consumption. I'm not familiar with the one that you're describing. Mr. Robinson, thank you very much for being so entertaining. Back in the mid-70s, I'd like to ask you about a very early decision you must have had to make space frame tail or monocoque and I wonder what persuaded you to go for monocoque the uh, the bell the 47 was a very popular tail at that, and in use at that time what persuaded you to go for monocoque frame 
Well, you probably saw all that on the uh, Sikorsky VS300, all that bad plumbing that holds that together. And <laughs> it just isn't as efficient as, as a monocoque construction. Monocoque construction is, mo is more efficient in carrying the loads than the welded steel tube is. Thank you. And looks a lot neater. Absolutely, so. I agree. There's a question here. Hi, Frank. Um, my name's Russell Harris, and, and it's great to see you in England. Um, I have the pleasure of um, being a, a 44 pilot, or probably one of the first Raven 2 pilots, um, owners in, uh, in Britain. Certainly the first purple um, 44 <laughs> Rave, the only purple. Thank you. Um, Frank, when you were explaining how you first of all started off there, um, when you were working out of your garage at home and then moving on to the, uh, the other factory that you had produced, how did you get the funding and how did you get the money to do that over all those years with, I assume, not earning a penny over, over that period? Now that is a real challenge. And I would never want to have to try to do that again. Because you have to use every piece of logic you possibly can come up with. Because raising money on a venture of that type is, because the payoff is so long. They're not going to get their, their reinvestment back in two or three years like they thought they were going to. It, it's going to take a lot longer. And of course, the failure rate in that type of a business is very high. And the venture capitalists are very much aware of that. So they adjust their rates of return and everything to cover that. It's, uh, I, would not want, I wouldn't want to try to do it again. Another question? It's one at the front here. Mike, if you can bring the microphone down. Uh, my name is David Park. You seem to live in a very nice house with palm trees all around it. What did the neighbors say when you started making helicopters in the garage? Oh, I forgot to tell you about that. I meant to include that in the... As a matter of fact, they complained to the Zoning Commission of what I was doing, and the Zoning Commission for the county ordered me to cease and desist and all that nonsense. And uh, furthermore, they said that, there, that I would have to pay a fine for having violated their zoning commission rules. I, I can't remember for sure, but as I recall, I believe it was $800. And I didn't have $800 to give those people at that time or serve eight days in jail or so They had a couple of different alternatives there that I could, that I could accept. And so I decided, ah, the hell with that. So when I was called in, in, in front of the judge, he asked me, uh, how do you plead? And I said, not guilty. Well, I was just guilty as hell. I knew it. Everybody else knew it. 
I had violated their zoning uh, rules. And furthermore, I said, and I demand not only a trial, but a, a jury trial. And the judge was, okay, that's your right. And, uh, and I said, oh, and one more thing, Your Honor, I would like to act as my own attorney. And so he, ag he agreed with that as well. And so we went ahead with that trial, and I had to call my witnesses, and they called their witnesses, and it went on, and they, we had to set, seat the, the complete jury, and uh, I had to get up and give my side of the whole thing. I just got up and told the, every, told the jury exactly what I was doing and why, and didn't minimize anything, and didn't in any way say anything to, to try to make myself look innocent, because I knew I wasn't. <laughs> and uh, the juries, I, they went out, and uh, I think they pondered it uh, for about, I don't think, I, I don't think it was even much more than one hour, or at the most two. They came back, and they found me innocent. <laughs> Hi, Frank. Um, uh, my name is Simon Clifton. I'm an R44 pilot. I uh, just wondered, with all the positive implications of uh, pilot workload management of glass dashboards, have you got any plans to introduce glass dashboards on the 44 in the future? I'm sorry, I couldn't understand what the last of what you said. Have you got said. any plans to introduce the glass dashboards on the R44? Oh, the glass panels? Yeah. Well, we, we've uh, looked at them, we evaluated them, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to do so. My big thing is that I believe a lot of the pilot air accidents, and that's what most air accidents are in the helicopter. Not just ours, but in others, all of them, is because of the pilot is distracted. Instead of concentrating on the, what's outside the aircraft, wires, trees, other aircraft, he's got his eyes down looking at gauges. And the more gauges you give him to look at, the more <laughs> toys to play with or adjust and so on the more he'll keep his attention inside. And I don't like to see that. I want the pilots to get their focus outside the cockpit and pay attention to what's out there. And uh, I, I believe that that will produce the least amount of accidents. Just one, oh, okay, it's all right. Next, next. Hi, Roach Jagger from the FT. Um, From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. 
visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.